Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we'd like to end our time with a chaser. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. We love hearing from our listeners, so feel free to contact us by email or social media. You can find our contact info in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to support us through Patreon, you can find us there at Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast, or use the link in our show notes. Alrighty, Mom, what are you going to be telling us about today? I am going to be talking about reincarnation. Ooh, and a interesting. story about it. What mm. story are you going to be telling us about today? I'm going to be talking about James Joseph Bulger, other known as, or otherwise known as Whitey Bulger. Whitey. Okay. Yes. Are you going to tell us where he got the nickname from? Yep. Okay, cool. And uh, to go with this, I have a Boston Sour because this whole story comes out of Boston. So. All right. Cool, cool. Let's give it a shot. Boston Sour has two fluid ounces of bourbon whiskey, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, freshly squeezed preferably, uh, half an ounce of sugar syrup, also known as simple syrup. I don't know why it says mm. sugar syrup, but and then a half ounce of pasteurized egg white or aquafaba, but I don't have that, so I went with no. egg white. I did too. So it would be All nice right, and foamy and frothy. Okay. Yours is way foamier than mine. I did the dry shake on mine first. Did you oh. dry shake yours? No, I was lazy. I just, okay. <laughs> I just shook it over ice. It's good though. It's yeah, very tasty. You can taste the bourbon. Have we done in the it, Boston sure. sour before? Mm-mm. We mm. did the New We've York done sour. Other sours though. Oh, okay. We did the New York sour, which is almost the same thing, except it has red wine float. Oh, I believe it's right. almost that's identical right. except for the red wine float. I think you're right. So let me tell you about Whitey Bolger. He's had a very interesting life. So cool. James Joseph Bulger was born in 1929 to parents James and Jane Bulger. That's a lot of J's. Bulger, yeah, a lot of J's. Bulger grew up in poverty and quickly turned to the street life, unlike his brothers William and John, who excelled at school. After several run ins with the police, uh, they gave Bulger the nickname Whitey due to his light blonde hair. Okay. So he had like a bleach blonde look, yeah. Nice, okay. Bulger developed a reputation as a thief and street fighter fiercely loyal to South Boston. This led him to meeting more experienced criminals and finding more lucrative opportunities. 
1943, 14-year-old Bolger was arrested and charged with larceny. By then, he had joined a street gang known as the Shamrocks. (laughs) 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 We're going to Shamrock shake you, you hear? (laughs) Oh, yeah. That does not sound scary enough. (laughs) Yeah. He was eventually arrested for assault, forgery, and armed robbery. So a real cool guy. Yeah. Bolger was sentenced to a juvenile reformatory for these offenses. Shortly after his release in 1948, Bolger joined the United States Air Force, but he was not reformed yet. He spent time in military prison for several assaults and was later arrested by Air Force police in 1950 for going absent without leave. Nevertheless, he received an honorable discharge in 1952 and returned to Massachusetts. How how do you get an honorable discharge when you do all that shit? But I don't know. I have Maybe no it's idea. more paperwork <laughs> to do a dishonorable. Maybe. In 1956, Bolger served his first term in federal prison at Atlanta Penitentiary for armed robbery and truck hijacking. Ooh. Yeah, I've seen that in The Sopranos. I didn't know that was a real thing, though. They just like wow. go and steal semis. Yeah. Wow. I wonder if it was full of Cadbury cream eggs. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> this guy knew what he was doing. He was stealing the, not the Cadbury cream Stuff. egg truck. <laughs> Sorry. So Bolger later told mobster Kevin Weeks that while he was there, he was used as a human subject in the CIA-sponsored MK Ultra experiment. Oh, shit. Bolger told... uh. Bulger later complained that the inmates had been recruited by deception and were told they were help, helping to find a cure for schizophrenia when, in fact, they were being used to research mind control. Ooh. Evidence of the experiments were later confirmed as CIA documents emerged. Bulger and 18 other inmates, all of whom had volunteered in return for reduced sentences, were given LSD and other drugs over an 18-month period. He described his experience as nightmarish and said it took him to depths of insanity, writing in his notebooks that he heard voices and feared being committed for life if he admitted this to anyone. Ooh, that's terrifying. Yeah. So oh my that, gosh. It's just wild that he was used for MK Ultra, and then you'll see yeah. what else he goes through, but it, wow. it's interesting. In 1959, Bulger was briefly transferred to maximum security at Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary in California. Later in his sentence, he was transferred to Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, and in 1963 to Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary. <laughs> Bulger's third petition for parole in 1950, or 1965 was granted after he had served nine years in prison. After being released from prison, Bulger picked up some odd jobs before becoming a bookmaker and loan shark under mobster Donald Killeen, whose gang, the Killeens, were dominated, uh, dominated most of South Boston for over 20 years. The Killeens were led by three brothers, Donnie, Kenny, and Eddie, along with Billy O'Sullivan and Jack Curran. In 1971, 
Killian's younger brother, Kenny, allegedly shot and mauled Michael Mickey Doyer, a, mem- a member of the rival Mullen gang, during a brawl at the Transit Cafe. A gang war resulted from this, leading to a string of killings throughout Boston and the surrounding suburbs. This war would lead to the first of many murders committed by Bulger. Mm. Paul... Paul McGonagall was a member of the Mullen gang and a target for Bulger due to his loud mouth. So Bulger packed up his pistol and made his way to Paul. Berger, Bulger found Paul and shot him right between the eyes. However, the man Bulger shot wasn't Paul. But it was <gasps> Paul's brother. Shit. Yeah. Paul neither sought revenge for his... No, neither is good. And Paul didn't like this, so he sought revenge for his brother's murder and killed O'Sullivan on the assumption that he was the one responsible for his brother's killing. Bulger, realizing he was on the losing side, secretly approached Howie Winter, the leader of the Winter Hill Gang, and claimed that he could end the war by murdering the killing leadership. Shortly thereafter, on May 13, 1972, Donald Killing was gunned down from outside his home in the suburb of Framingham. Bulger and the Killings fled Boston, fearing that they would be next. Nee arranged for the dispute to be mediated by Winter and Joseph Rousseau. Uh, he was a uh, one of the leaders of the pa- Patrizia crime family in Rhode Island, and they sat down in a Chandler's nightclub in Boston. Uh, and the Mullins were represented by Nee and King, and the Killings represented by Bulger. As the coup, uh, after this meeting, the two gangs joined forces with Winter as the overall boss. So both the Mullins and the Killings decided to just become a part of uh, the Winter Hill Gang. But oh. it wasn't all just how did like it wasn't all right. just fine Hunky-dory. between. There was still yeah, there was still some bad blood issues between. Yeah. Okay. So after the 1972 truce, Bulger and the Mullins were in control of South Boston's criminal underworld. FBI specialist agent Dennis Condon noted in his log in September 1973 that Bulger and Nee had been heavily shaking down the neighborhood's bookmakers and loan sharks. Over the years that followed, Bulger began to remove opposition by persuading Winter to sanction the killings of those who stepped out of line. In a 2004 interview, Winter called that the highly intelligent Bulger, in quotes, could teach the devil tricks. During this era, Bulger's victims included Mullen veterans McGonagall King and James Spike O'Toole. Nice. According to mobster Kevin Weeks, as a criminal, he made a point of only preying upon criminals. And when things couldn't be worked out to his satisfaction with these people, after all the other options had been explored, he wouldn't hesitate to use violence. In 1979, Winter was arrested, the head of the Winter Hill Gang, along with many other mobsters in the circle. Uh, They were arrested on charges of fixing horse races. Bulger and Flemmy, who were uh, two heads of the gang, were left out of the indictments, and they stepped into, pe- into the power vacuum. 
So they, they became the leaders of the Winter Hill Gang, uh, Flemmy right. and Bulger. In 1980, Bulger was having problems with one of the bookmakers named Louis Latif. Latif was stealing from fellow bookmakers and used that money to import cocaine and also murdered two people without Bulger's consent. Because oh. Bulger was the head of the gang and this guy just went off and killed yeah. two people of the opposing gang without letting them know. Oh. This upset Bulger and shortly after, Latif was found stuffed into a garbage bag in the trunk of his own car. Oh. Ah. Latif had been stabbed multiple times with an ice pick and shot as well. Ow. In 1971, the Federal Bureau investigation approached Bulger and attempted to recruit him as an informant as part of their effort against the Patricia um, crime family. I'm butchering that name, by the way. I don't know how to pronounce it, but whatever. FBI Special Agent John Connolly was assigned to make the pitch. Which is not the same John Connolly from that JFK thing. I looked it up. Oh. Because that. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. So John Connolly was assigned to make the pitch. However, Connolly failed to win Bulger's trust at first. Soon after their first meeting, Bulger changed his mind and started to work with Connolly. So I'm guessing they scared him a little bit or something. Mm-hmm. Connolly allegedly said that FBI could help in Bulger's feud with the Patricia underboss, Gennaro Angiulio. I sound so stupid when I say foreign names. <laughs> After listening to the pitch, Bulger is said to have responded, All right, they want to play checkers. We'll play chess. Fuck them. Okay. Yeah. Throughout the 1980s, Bulger, Flemmy, and Weeks operated rackets throughout eastern Massachusetts, including loan sharking, bookmaking, truck hijacking, arms trafficking, and extortion. Okay. And just to just to put like two perspective, uh, their arms trafficking just alone, they were sending, um, they were buying guns and shipping them to the IRA in uh, Ireland. Mm-hmm. So they were working with – and one of the shipments of guns got intercepted, and it I believe it was 91 assault rifles, uh, RPG heads, um, grenades, shotguns, and a shitload of ammunition. Wow. Yeah. So that's we're- just the level of gang, like gang activity that's going on. They're shipping rocket launcher heads to the IRA. Where are they getting this from? America, baby. <laughs> I don't know. It was, wow. I'm, yeah, it was okay. a lot of crazy shit going on. All right. So that's just to put to perspective of their level of operations. They're moving. Yeah. They're that's moving weight. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. In 1982, a South Boston cocaine dealer named Edward Brian Holleran, known on the streets as Balloonhead, approached the FBI and stated that he had witnessed Bulger and Fleming murdering Latif, the guy uh, who was found in the trunk in a garbage bag. In the trunk. Okay. Yeah. Connolly informed Bulger of this information, and Bulger drove up with another man armed with a silenced Mac-10. Bulger himself carried a, a 30 carbine. Bulger and the other gunman both disguised, opened fired, and sprayed Halloran's car. 
Halloran lived long enough to identify his attacker as Bulger's associate, James Flynn, who was later tried and acquitted. Flynn remained the prime suspect until 1999, when Weeks agreed to cooperate with investigators and identified Bulger as one of the shooters. Wow. So Weeks was one of Bulger's main guys. He was the Uh uh, bouncer at his club and one of, like, he was up higher in the gang. Okay. In the summer of 1983, tensions between the Winter Hill Gang and the Patricia family escalated to an all-time high. An employee for the Coinomatic, a cash laundering vending machine company owned by by the gang, was kidnapped on the job. Oh. The Boston PD received a tip that a local butcher shop owned by Bulger was involved. Inside, police found an employee hanging from a meat rack, having been brutally tortured over six days. However, he never testified against anyone. Oh, my. Wow. That's some. That's some crazy shit right there. Some movie scenes. Holy. No kidding. No kidding. Six days tortured. And then yeah, you just keep your uh, mouth shut. Hooked on a meat rack. Yeah. He was hooked on a meat rack. Like where you Holy trim shit. up a, a hanging cow. Yeah. Yuck. In the next few months, three low-level Winter Hill Gang members were executed, mostly believed to be in retribution for the kidnapping. This bloody mob war shined a large spotlight on Morris and triggered an internal investigation within the FBI. Because Bulger is an informant. Yeah. And the FBI warned Bulger of this guy. Oh. Okay. So I'll talk about that later, too, because the FBI got in a lot of trouble. Hmm. In the summer of 1991, Bulger and Weeks, along with the associates Patrick and Michael Lindsay, came into possession of a winning Massachusetts lottery ticket, which had been (gasps) bought at a store... He owned <laughs> the four it's men shared a prize. Yeah. Four men shared a prize of around 14 million at the time. I I didn't look up what it is today, what? but that's a Holy lot of fucking money. Shit. Which they believed was used to launder money because he was doing yeah. all this shit, shipping guns to the Irish and he had to yeah. come up with something. Of course. But guess what? He won lottery twice in his lifetime. <laughs> He's Both the luckiest man alive. Yes, he is. That he owns. A lot of people believed he obtained his share of the jackpot illegitimately. Which. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Not real. <laughs> in April 1994. <laughs> A joint task force of the DEA, the Boston Police, and Massachusetts State Police launched a probe of Bulger's illegal gambling operation. Jesus, stumbled through that sentence. The FBI, by this time, considered compromised, was not informed after a number of bookmakers agreed to testify to having paid protection money for Bulger. A federal case was built against him under the Racketeering Influence and Corruption Acts other known as the Rico. So we got hit with the Rico. Okay. Bulger had uh, set up safety deposit boxes containing cash, jewelry, and 
passports in locations across North America and Europe, including Florida, Oklahoma, Montreal, Dublin, London, Birmingham, and Venice. Wow. He's going everywhere, setting all these new identities up. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Let's go. He won a $14 million lottery. He's got a lot of money to spend. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So in December 1994, he was informed by Connolly that sealed indictment had come from the Department of Justice and that the FBI was set to make arrests during the Christmas season. In response, Bulger fled Boston on December 23, 1994, accompanied by his common-law wife, Theresa Stanley. Wow. Four days over Christmas in uh, they spent four days over Christmas in Selden, New York, before uh, spending New Year's Day in a hotel in the New Orleans French Quarter. On January fifth, nineteen ninety five, Bolger prepared to return to Boston, believing that it had been a false alarm. That night, however, Flemmy was arrested outside a Boston restaurant by the DEA. <laughs> Oops. So he he was like. Oh, I think I think I can go back. And then later that day, he saw that his friend got arrested. So, uh, Boston police detective Michael Flemmy, Stevens' brother, informed Weeks of their arrest. So his brother was working on the police force, and then was oh, the nice. person to arrest him. Nice. <sighs> yeah. Weeks Oops. immediately passed the information on to Bolger, who altered his plans. Bulger and Stanley spent the next three weeks traveling to New York City, Los Angeles, and San Francisco before Stanley finally decided she wanted to return to her children. They traveled to Clearwater, Florida, where Bulger retrieved his Tom Baxter identification from a safety deposit box. He then drove to Boston and dropped off Stanley in a parking lot. Bulger met with Weeks at Malibu Beach in Dorchester, where Weeks brought Bulger's girlfriend, Katherine Gregg, so he had a common-law wife and a girlfriend. <laughs> Bulger and Greed went on the run together. Yeah, it, you're running the biggest mob in Boston. You might as well. Of course. Why not? The first confirmed sighting of Bulger before his capture in London uh, was in London in 2002. A businessman watching Hannibal recognized a photograph of Bulger in a scene featuring the website or featured on the website of FBI's most wanted fugitives. Oh my gosh. So a reward of two million had been offered for information leading to his capture. And this amount was second only to Osama bin Laden's capture. Wow. Holy crap. That's After amazing. 16 years at large and 12 years on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list, Bulger was arrested in Santa Monica, in Santa Monica, California on June 22nd, 2011. He was 81 years old at the time of his arrest. <gasps> Whoa. Oh my authorities, received, uh, authorities received a tip from a woman in Iceland that Bulger was living in an apartment near a beach in Santa Monica. The Weird. Boston Globe identified the tipster as Anna Bjorn Dorter. Sorry about the name again. Sorry. Uh, there's a lot of word letters I don't recognize in that name. <laughs> so who is a former model and an actress. 
and Miss Iceland 1974. She happened to be Bulger's neighbor. (laughs) A day later, uh, using a ruse, agents and other task force members lured Bulger out of his apartment and arrested him without incident. They then went into the house and arrested his girlfriend. Wild. Bulger was charged with murder, conspiracy to commit murder, extortion, narcotics distribution, and money laundering. Agents found more than $800,000 in cash, 30 firearms, and fake IDs at the apartment. Holy. Wow. Bulger was arraigned in federal court on July 6, 2011. He pled not guilty to 48 charges, including 19 counts of murder, extortion, money laundering, obstruction of justice, perjury, narcotics distribution, and weapons (sighs) violations. Bulger was convicted and given two life sentences plus five years, a forfeiture of $25.2 million and $19.8 million in restitution. Yeah. Holy shit. Oh my god, yeah. that money. That's so much money. All that money. One more time. At 8.20 a.m. on October 30th, uh, 2018, the 89-year-old Bulger was found dead. Bulger was in a wheelchair and had been beaten to death by multiple inmates armed with a sock wrap padlock and a shiv. His eyes had been gouged out and his tongue was almost cut off. And law enforcement described Bulger as unrecognizable. Oh, that is so gross. What the hell? Weird ending to the story, huh? What a weird Uh, story. The dude is an MK Ultra. He, He had to pay so much money in restitution and then he gets beat to death with a sock and a padlock holy crap oh my gosh crazy guy that is wild that is if there's not already a movie about his life then there needs to be because yeah it's insane that is crazy so many things like I, it just I jumped no all clue. over the place. Yeah. Yeah, it did. <laughs> I had no clue. None at all. Crazy story. Wow. Hey guys, I'm Shelby, host of Addicted to Crime podcast. Join us for deep, chilling dives into the evil nature of criminals, and let's take a closer look at their early life and background to see how they got to the day of the crime. This podcast was created in hopes you pay closer attention to your surroundings and hopefully stay safe. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts or else on the website www.addictedtocrime.org. Happy listening, thanks for your time, and stay safe. Declan, are you ready to hear a story about reincarnation? I am ready. Okay. So let's talk about reincarnation. Some cultures embrace the idea of reincarnation. 
the idea that your soul can be reborn into another body when your physical body passes on. Your next life could depend on your actions today. Some religions and cultures discount the idea of reincarnation altogether, believing there is one life for the earthly body and the soul within. This is a story of a family torn between the idea of reincarnation and strange things that happened after a tragic loss. This Mm. is a story about the Pollock sisters. Okay. John and Florence Pollock were a common Catholic family who lived in Hexham, England in the 1940s and 50s. They ran a milk delivery business in their town. They had four sons when Florence gave birth to their first daughter, Joanna, in 1946. Five years later, in 1951, their second daughter, Jacqueline, was born. Joanna and Jacqueline were close as sisters often are, and they they uh, the older sister, Joanna, often looked after the younger one. Jacqueline had an active imagination and enjoyed playing dress-up games. On May 5, 1957, the sisters were walking to church with a young friend of theirs named Anthony. Suddenly, a car veered off the road and hit the children. Sadly, the sisters died at the scene, and their friend died soon after, while being taken to the hospital. Fuck. Yeah. The female driver of the vehicle was intoxicated. She had overdosed on aspirin and female barbitone after she had lost custody of her own children. Yeah. Uh, It's very tragic. It was suggested that either the driver was trying to kill herself or had deliberately targeted the children in an attempt to retaliate against the world for her own misfortune. She was a heat-seeking missile for any child she saw. Yeah. (laughs) Which, Jesus. if you're upset about the shit that happened in your life, don't take it out on other people. Yeah. PSA for the day. She survived the accident and was later committed to a psychiatric hospital. Florence and John were, of course, devastated, and John feared that the girls died because he was being punished by God. As a child, John had read a book about reincarnation and had always found it very interesting. He even questioned his Catholic faith and had asked God for proof of reincarnation, which is why he thought he was being punished, because he questioned it, which is, as a parent, I don't ever want to think something like that. So, yeah. Mm Uh, Light in the darkness came soon after the girl's death when Florence became pregnant. John held a deep belief that Florence would give birth to twin girls, even though twins didn't run in either of their families. The doctor only heard one heartbeat, so was certain that John was incorrect. But he maintained, no, Florence is pregnant with twins and she's going to have twins. The following year, on October 4th, 1958, John was proven right when Florence gave birth to identical twin girls who they named Jillian and Jennifer. Yeah, crazy. Okay. At least they didn't name uh, them the same thing. Yeah, I was like, going to say, like, imagine 
like you find out that your parents named you after kids died before yeah, you. Yeah, that would be rough. Right. Yeah. 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 When the twins were born, John believed them to be the reincarnation of his lost daughters. However, Florence did not believe in reincarnation. She was fully into the Catholic uh, religion and Catholicism. They don't believe in reincarnation. Although Jillian and Jennifer were identical twins, they did have some differences. Jennifer had a birthmark on her hip that was the same, that was the size and shape of a thumbprint. Sometimes twins will have matching birthmarks, but that wasn't the case this time as Jillian did not have the birthmark. But Joanna had had the same birthmark in that exact location when she was alive. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. Weird. Jennifer also possessed a birthmark on her forehead that resembled a scar that Joanna had had, had, had when she was alive. She got it when she fell in 1954. Uh-huh. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. Jennifer and Jillian also differed in their body shape, each resembling their deceased sisters more than their live twin. So usually identical twins they look, look identical. like each other. Yeah. Right. Not these ones. That's when crazy. the twins Uh-huh. When the twins were three months old, the family moved to another town 30 miles away called Whitley Bay. When the girls were two years old, they started asking for toys that they didn't personally own, but had actually belonged to their older sisters, even though they had never seen the toys before. So they were asking for, I don't know the toys, but for example, I want that green toad that I used to play with. I'm not saying that's what they were asking for, but they were asking for toys that they had never seen before. The toys were in a box in the attic. Florence, their mom, brought out a box of the old, old toys, which had previously belonged to Joanna and Jennifer. Crazy. That. Oh. I'm sorry, Joanna weirder and Jacqueline. Weirder. Yes. Jillian preferred Joanna's toys, while Jennifer chose Jacqueline's toys. The twins were also able to identify toys in the box that their sisters had been given from Santa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Mom and Dad, you gave me this toy, but Santa gave us this toy. Yeah. A few years after the family moved out of Hexham, the family moved back to Hexham. At this point, the girls were a few years old. They started describing how to walk to familiar places of their deceased sisters, like their favorite playground or their old school. The twins couldn't see these locations as they were small and the view was obscured, uh, but they still were able to explain how to get there. So from the street, they were saying, like, if you go up here and turn right at the top of the hill, That'll be where we went to school. And if you go down here and turn left, that's where we liked to play at the playground. That's the playground if you go down this mm -hmm. way. But they'd never been there before. That's so they weird. knew how to get there from walking, but they'd never been there before. Mm -hmm. The twins could not have known either of these places as they had never seen them before. As I mentioned earlier, Florence was not a believer in the past lives and re reincarnation idea. That changed when she found the twins playing a strange game. 
Jennifer was laying on the ground with her head in Jillian's lap. Jillian said, quote, the blood is coming out of your eyes. That's where the car hit you, unquote. Car hit her in yeah. the eyes? So they hit her, but she was probably bleeding from the eyes. I don't know. Oh. But another spooky occurrence happened when Jillian pointed at the scar on Jennifer's forehead and explained how Jacqueline had received the scar when she fell. So she said, oh, you got this scar when such and such happened, but that didn't happen to her. That happened to Jacqueline. That's fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. Jillian said, this is the mark Jennifer got when she fell on the bucket. But she wasn't the one that fell on the bucket. The twins were also scared of cars and were fearful that a car passing by was coming to get them. Further strange proof were the twins' preferences for the same foods, clothing, as songs as their deceased sisters. The twins could identify friends and neighbors that they had not uh, previously met, but that the, tw- that the sisters had known. Hmm. Jillian was born 10 minutes before Jennifer and tended to take care of her the way Joanna had cared for Jacqueline when the girls were alive. As the twins got older, their memories of from their sister's lives started to fade. And by the time they were five, they basically stopped mentioning them. However, mm. in 1981, when the twins were 23 years old, Jillian talked about memories she had playing in Wickham, England. Jillian had never lived in Wickham, but Joanna had lived there when she was a toddler. Wow. In 19, yeah. In 1987, a psychiatry professor from the University of Virginia School of Medicine wrote a book about stories of reincarnation. He believed that children's stories from past lives were more credible than adults' claims, as reincarnation stated that um, the stories of reincarnation that children told were less likely to be influenced by like pop culture, media, that kind of stuff. They were telling things. The psychiatrist believed but the stories that the children were telling were not influenced by outside forces, so they were more likely to be real stories. He included the Pollock sisters in their stories as proof of the occurrence. However, skeptics have other theories they believe that will explain the idea of reincarnation. They believe either the parents or the brothers talking about the deceased girls may have influenced the twins to believe that they had memories of the previous lives. So basically the idea is that the somebody was telling the girls, oh, your sisters had, you know, they loved this song. And then the girls started liking the song too. Um, yeah. Whatever the skeptics say, there are definitely people who believe Jillian and Jennifer were the reincarnation of Joanna and Jacqueline. And that is my story of reincarnation through the eyes of the Pollock sisters. It's very crazy. That I never yeah. heard that story before. Yeah, that was an interesting one. Yeah. You have a chaser for us? I do have a chaser. It is a TV recommendation. Uh, well, TV series recommendation. Uh, the show You on Netflix, 
just finished the series uh season four i believe it was and this season was much different than previous seasons if you've watched you uh in the past this season was a little bit different where he still has obsessions with people but it also has like a murder mystery thing behind it and he's trying to solve a murder and and I'm not going to give any spoilers, but it it takes some twists and turns that I did not expect to see. And you don't really get those until you see the second half of it. So it's really good. I highly recommend it if you want a fun binge and you've never watched it. You have four seasons to binge. So go for <laughs> it. What, Chaser, do you have for us? Of a movie recommendation. Ooh, um, double watch recommendation horror fans out there a movie called the crazies and it's about uh this town that a plane carrying um like a chemical bioweapon crashes and it starts polluting the water and making people go crazy and like kill other people i don't like that it's a very good watch okay i'll check it out i I don't think i've seen it everybody it's got okay. the uh, main actor from Justified. I can't remember his name, but mm. yeah, I can't remember actor. either because I'm a few drinks into today. So, <laughs> Timothy Oliphant. There we go. Got it. Okay, I'll go with that. Sure. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm bad with names, so I don't know. It's okay. But I enjoyed hearing about. Uh, reincarnation yeah yes sorry we're a few drinks in (laughs) yep i got distracted by the chaser (laughs) that's okay but yeah we'll wrap this up before we start forget everything stupid shit yeah (laughs) all right love you love you bud talk to you later hey friends thank you for supporting our podcast please share our show with your brutal and bizarre friends Give us a boozy follow on your favorite podcast platform. If you're feeling extra generous, we'd appreciate a five-star rating or review as well. But maybe do that sober so all the letters are in the right place. You can find all our contact information in the show notes. We love hearing from you, and if you're interested in helping us stock the bar for our future boozy episodes, you can find our Patreon link in the show notes as well.